0: Susan, Butcher Box to the rescue. The other night, we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thawed out some chicken from Butcher Box and made the best Cocoa Van that we've had in a long, long time.
1: Yeah, you'd have been screwed without Butcher Box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true, I don't have time to go shop for
0: meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat, so ButcherBox does all of that for me.
1: So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates.
0: (laughs) I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too.
1: ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans.
0: It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood.
1: There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks.
0: Sign up at butcherbox.com slash proof and get our special deal. Butcher Box is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional 20% off.
1: Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash proof and use code proof to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So, in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine tingling true crime every AM with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more.
0: So, pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So one thing I was really excited to get down to Floyd County for was to finally find out what the jurors believed in this case. Like what was it that made the jurors convict Liam King? and I wanted to know how the jurors looked at this evidence and what they did to interpret it, put it together, and piece together a story to convince them the is mulled out. I am now a little concerned. I'm never gonna get an answer to that question. The jurors in this case, by and large, did not have difficulty in reaching a guilty verdict. But as one juror told us, trying to entangle exactly why they'd reached that verdict might not be possible. He told us, like, it can get really crazy in the jury room. When a trial happens, you can just, I think he said, throw out the attorneys, throw out the judge. None of that matters because you got 12 people in a deliberation room who don't know what they're doing and going by their gut, and you'll never know what's going to happen. Yeah, he said it's definitely by the gut and not by the law. And that whatever just happened in that courtroom, God knows what the jury is going to do with it when they get alone. The jurors we spoke to varied in how much they were called about this case. Some remember quite a bit, others almost nothing. One of the jurors we spoke to allowed us to record, and others agreed to talk to us, but didn't want to be recorded.
2: My answer came to to myself. Very early on, when we were asked to deliberate, I I knew early on what my decision was gonna be. You know, saying that uh, they were guilty.
0: One juror, an older man who didn't deliberate came into the room and said, Let's fry him, literally. Let's lock him up and fry him. Switch, you know, flip
1: the switch and call, the, of the, switch day. And
0: call it the day.
1: For all of the jurors that we spoke to, though, what seems to stand out most clearly in their memory is the case's forensic evidence. The evidence that showed how Brian had been shot and why the jurors thought it made it impossible for him to have shot himself.
2: There was a uh, expert witness who, who talked about close range and stuff like that, but I, I don't really remember anything about it, you know. I just remember seeing the, the pictures. I had never seen uh, pictures so graphic, and they were pretty graphic, and hearing, you know, some of the, the things that we heard.
1: He could tell that it was not a game of Russian roulette because people who play Russian roulette put the gun in their mouth. They don't put it to the side of their head. I don't know what to say about that. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi,
0: I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening and welcome to Proof. Before we get into the physical evidence in this case and what it does and does not show about how Brian was killed, let's take a step back for a moment. Let's look at what the investigators believe happened on the night that Brian Bowling was shot. The state's theory looks something like this. Around 9.30 on October 18, 1996, Lee and Kane get word from Caprice through a special beeper code that Brian is home. The two teenagers then head over to the bowling's trailer. Kane enters through the front door and heads back to Brian's room. Lee, meanwhile, sneaks around the back of the trailer to Brian's bedroom window. Brian is sitting on his bed, talking on the phone with Caprice. It is her job to keep Brian so distracted that he doesn't notice Lee opening the window behind him. Using a cushion from the bowling's living room sofa as a silencer, Lee shoots Brian through the now-open bedroom window. Brian falls to the floor, the cordless phone still clutched in his right hand. Lee tosses the pillow and revolver inside to Kane, who hides the pillow, which now has Brian's blood on it, in a hole in the wall behind a dresser. Kane also drops the revolver underneath Brian's body. As Brian's family rushes into the bedroom, Kane begins to shout. He shot himself. I didn't mean to kill him. Meanwhile, Lee runs around to the front of the trailer and off into the night. But that night, Charlie Childers, a family friend of the Bolings, had been watching TV in the living room with the rest of Brian's family. Charlie is deaf, he did not hear the gunshot, so he didn't rush to Brian's bedroom with everyone else. He was still sitting in the living room, staring out the window, which is why he saw Lee Clark as he ran across the Bolings' well-lit front yard.
1: This is the gist of the state's case, though some of the details are flexible. For instance, investigators seem to have believed that Lee Clark was the actual shooter. But they remained open to the idea that Kane could have been the shooter instead, and that Lee was merely outside the bedroom window to supervise events. So, how does the physical evidence in this case stack up against the investigator's theory? Well, to begin with, it should be noted that there's almost no physical evidence in this case. As Brian's uncle Michael Baker recalls, most of the basic investigative steps that you'd expect didn't happen.
3: Like I said, to me, they didn't do a very good job on the investigation period. Honestly, I mean, we were having them tell them who to talk to, you know, and things like that. So, yeah. But they just never would follow up, really.
1: There's a lot of evidence that we just don't have, like the 911 call made by Brian's family, or the records of the phone calls made between Caprice and Brian or any alleged calls or beeper messages sent between Caprice and Lee and Kane. In fact,
0: there are a grand total of 3 pieces of evidence collected in this case. A GSR test done on Kane's hands, a 38 revolver, and a bloody pillow. The GSR test on Kane's hands turned out to be negative, indicating that it wasn't Kane who fired the gun that killed Brian. And that means if this was a murder, There must have been someone else present to pull the trigger. Then there's the thirty-eight revolver. Brian's family remembers seeing it when they rushed into his bedroom after
1: hearing a loud thud.
4: Did you look for the
2: gun or did you? I seen the gun. Okay, and the gun was at his feet? In between his feet. In between the feet. The revolver belonged
0: to Kane's father. And Kane says this is the gun Brian shot himself with. But since no testing was ever done on it, and since the bullet that shot Brian was never found, this was never actually confirmed. We also don't have a documented record of how the revolver was loaded, or if it was even loaded when it was found. But in his opening statement at Lee's and Kane's trial, Prosecutor Steve Cox told the jury,
5: You will hear testimony that the gun, when it was recovered, had one live round remaining in it and one spent shell. But you will hear testimony that the police very quickly, very quickly, determined that this was not a self-inflicted wound because Brian was right-handed. He had the phone clutched in his right hand. The bullet angle or whatever was very inconsistent with the self-inflicted wound.
0: If what Steve Cox said about the revolver being loaded with a live round is true, then this would be damning evidence. It would strongly suggest that Brian had not been playing Russian roulette when he was shot. As we mentioned in episode four, Sergeant Dallas Battle testified that while at the Bowling's trailer, someone handed him a live round. He wasn't sure who, and he didn't know where they'd gotten the round from. He'd also collected a single spent casing from the revolver. But as Sergeant Battle testified at trial, He doesn't know what happened to the live round or the spent casing after that.
1: Now, what did you do with that casing and that live round?
5: I took them back to the station with me. I put them with the gun, and I don't know where the rounds are.
1: And you did not log them into evidence along with the pistol?
5: When we first got back to the station, I did not put them in a vault or anything. Later on that night after we got done talking to Kane and went to the hospital. Then I put the weapon, logged it into evidence, and the rounds were not there at that time.
1: And you have no idea where they are today?
5: No, sir.
0: So based on the case file, it's at least possible then that the live round had been loaded in the 38 revolver, like the prosecutor said. There had been a live round collected from somewhere at the bowling's trailer. It was only by accident that during the trial, the true origin of the live round was discovered. During questioning of Brian's brother-in-law, Kenneth Floyd, Steve Cox had asked him how Kane Joshua's Story had been acting that night. Kenneth responded, I asked him what Brian had been shot with, and he handed me a live round that had still been in his pocket. Kenneth's answer seems to have caught the prosecutor off guard as he immediately ended his questioning there. But if Kenneth hadn't inadvertently testified about where the live round had actually come from, the jury might have been left with just the prosecutor's mistaken claims that the revolver had two rounds in it when it had been fired.
1: One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers, local papers all over the country trying to track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example.
2: <laughs>
0: hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions.
1: Luckily, there's a solution. People like us who sometimes lose track of things, and that's rocket money. Rocket
0: Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings.
1: With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses.
0: Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you.
1: That's amazing. That's that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion. And saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features.
0: So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com proof.
1: That's rocketmoney.com proof. rocketmoney.com proof. Susan,
0: it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet?
1: I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season.
0: I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways.
1: Our sanity, our health, and definitely like ripping hair out and frustration sometimes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help.
1: Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over one million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding.
0: Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology.
1: Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes.
0: Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF.
1: Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. In addition to the three pieces of physical evidence, we also have a small collection of snapshots taken of Brian's bedroom that night. These photos are the only documented evidence we have about the condition of another important piece of this case, Brian's bedroom window. Because if Lee Clark shot Brian through this bedroom window, then that window should have been open. Or rather, the piece of plywood that covered Brian's bedroom window should have been moved aside.
6: In his bedroom, the glass, I guess he knocked it out, or maybe him and Kane did when they were down there. I don't know how it got knocked out. But the glass in his window in his bedroom was missing. And what she did, and this is the middle of October, and everybody knows up in northwest Georgia in the middle of October, at night it gets cold. Well, he's sitting in there in his window, but his window didn't have no glass in it, and she had took and gave him a blanket to hang on two nails and a piece of plywood to stick up in the window, calling herself keeping, uh, I guess that's supposed to keep the wind out or whatever. I mean, I don't get that right there. I mean, your son' bedroom window's missing. It's October. Spend the money and get him a new window.
1: Brian's mother, Deborah Bowling, did not like Lee Clark. She had made it clear she did not want Lee coming around the trailer. And Lee says this was in large part due to comments he'd made to her about Brian's living conditions.
6: And I made a comment to her about the way she was raising Brian and stuff, the way she treated him and stuff, and she definitely didn't want me no around no more after that. So.
1: What comments and, you did know, you make about that?
6: I just told her, I said, uh, the way you treat your son, is not right. I mean, you let him live in there in the bedroom and stuff. He's got that this and dog shit all over the floor. And you let him live in there like his stuff's okay. He ain't got no sheets on his bed and everything. I said, what kind of parent does that? And she just got mad with me. So, after that, she wanted me nowhere around her house, so.
1: The crime scene photos confirm Lee's description of Brian's bedroom. It's cluttered, and in many of the photos, it's hard to tell what you're looking at. And at Lee's and Kane's trial, these photos made an impression on the jury. Do you yep. recall seeing the pictures of the, the boy's bedroom?
2: Oh uh-huh. yeah I do. Well it it had a mattress but no no it didn't have any sheets or pillowcases or you know bedspread or um had nothing. It, it was just really uh uh-uh, nothing. Uh uh-uh. uh it was just it was just a, a room with a um uh, um with a mattress just with a bunch of junk around you know. What was your
1: impression yeah. of the two boys? you Remember them?
2: Well, you know, sometimes children are uh Their environment has so much to do with, you know, their behavior. And I felt like their family situation was pretty rough. They didn't come from, you know, a family that made sure they went to school or, you know, uh, I just remembered that about them, you know.
1: When these photos were taken, Brian's bedroom window had been covered up. The plywood board is in place, and two blankets are hung up over it. But according to Kenneth, that's not how things had been when they'd rushed into Brian's bedroom after hearing the shot. Tell me about the window in Brian's room.
7: All it was was a board, and it just was—it was down. The board was down at that time.
1: When you went in, mm-hmm. how, what was the board
7: like? How was it? Laying on the bed.
1: In the crime scene photos, it shows that the board is, like, still up against the wall, you know, or the window.
7: It probably got moved, or somebody moved it or something.
1: Did that, when you saw that, did, did it register to you at the time that it was significant?
7: I I didn't think nothing about it, because, I mean, like something. I said, it was up, down all the time. one of the two. It was either up or down.
1: So in the moment, it didn't...
7: No, it, I didn't think nothing of it.
0: No one in Brian's family remembers replacing the plywood board over the window or hanging up the blanket again, and there's no record of the police or anyone else doing so either. And none of the witnesses were interviewed immediately after the shooting. The only recorded interview from anyone in Brian's family was an interview with his mother from seven months later, and she doesn't mention anything about the window being open. So we're left with a conflict between photos and witness memories that we have no conclusive way to resolve. But what does seem certain is that if the plywood had been over the window to begin with, there's no way Lee could have removed it without Brian becoming aware of his presence. Brian's sister Amanda showed us the window at the back of the trailer.
2: Yeah, you just reach in and just push that board down on down.
1: So it'd be hard to sneak in, though. So if Ryan was in the bedroom...
2: He would have known somebody, yeah. yeah. That's why I think he might have known Lee was there, you know, because he would have had to gotten on the bed to get in in the house. Yeah, because
1: that window opens right for to the bed. It looks yeah,
2: cool. it did.
1: So you're not really going to be, like, sneakily...
2: Uh-uh, no. Mm-mm.
0: Lee's brother Jamie agrees with Amanda. He also took us to Brian's back window and showed us how Brian's friends had used a cement block to climb in and out of the window.
8: We, we used to climb out that back window cause that's the board. We just take the board down and climb out the back window. But like, would someone in the room notice? In the bedroom? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
1: So if Brian was sitting on the bed, could you have snuck in the window without him noticing? Oh
8: no, not at all.
1: There is no way that Brian
0: could have been ambushed through this window because he would have had time to react. And while out at the Bowling's Old Trailer with Jamie, we realized another problem with the investigator's theory that we hadn't quite realized before seeing the place. The only evidence that directly places Lee Clark at the Bowling's Trailer that night is Charlie Childers, a family friend who, according to Sergeant Dallas battle, saw Lee Clark run across the front yard after the gun went off.
1: So the living room...
8: is right there as soon as you step in that door.
1: So why on earth would would Lee have run by that window? My point. He would have been going out that way. That
8: way if he was going to be running.
1: So Charlie Childers was sitting in there watching TV. Yep. He looks out that double window and supposedly sees Darryl Lee Clark. Where's he running, though?
8: Why would you run from the back of the house into the front of the house and if he was trying to get anywhere, he'd be up there to Canes. It would be that way.
1: I think I just assumed it made sense that Lee would have run past the window. But it doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no reason for him ever to run past that window.
0: Charlie Childers was in the living room, looking out of a double window onto the bowling's front yard. Brian's bedroom is in the back of the trailer, facing the cemetery and the hill across from it, where Kane's trailer was. After leaving Brian's bedroom window, it would have been a straight shot through the dark cemetery and up the hill to Kane's
8: house. Kane's house is up, up there. Okay. I mean, if you take and you go right around this road right here, Kane's house is up there at the top of the hill.
1: And there's nothing. That way, that Lee would have been going no, to. Uh-uh, no, I know. If, if, Lee, assuming Lee was here that night, yeah. assuming Lee went to Brian's window mm-hmm. and he's then running away, what would have could have possibly have compelled him to go where he could have been seen?
8: I mean, you wouldn't. If
1: Lee is at the window of Brian's house, there's no universe where he's going past that window.
5: Charlie no. wouldn't have been able to see him. Before. Brian's
8: window is on the other side of the house. I mean, that, that, you see, there's only that light right there, uh, as far as light.
0: As Amanda confirmed, the only working light would have been the one above the bowling's front porch. It lit up the front yard, but everything else was dark. Susan and Dan, the cameraman, who joined us in Rome on this trip, tried to explain why, if Lee was there that night, he would have run across the lit side of the
4: trailer. It does seem crazy that he would decide to go on the lit side of the house after supposedly committing this crime versus the dark side of the house where he obviously initially approached from. S- approached from, because where everyone was in the living room, everyone would have seen someone walking lit up in the front yard. The only reason it was only Charlie at the end was because supposedly the commotion was happening, and Charlie at that point was the only one who was just, like, chilling and didn't know what was happening.
0: We really need to find out from Charlie himself what he saw that night at the bowling's trailer, But to do that, we have to find him first. Still yeah, haven't
1: so. found Charlie.
5: Yeah, I mean, it just, it seems weird.
0: I think we need to just, like, sit there across the street <laughs> waiting for him to come. We're
1: going down Silver Creek. Go to the mini mart. I'm going to sit there and play ding-ding all day <laughs> until the chiller shows up.
5: Kind <laughs> of play ding-ding all day. Oh my god.
0: That brings us to the third, final, and most important piece of physical evidence in this case, the pillow. According to investigators, when either Kane or Lee shot Brian, they used a couch cushion from the bowling's living room as a silencer. They hid the pillow in a hole in Brian's bedroom wall to try to cover up their crime. But the pillow was discovered a few days later. Kenneth testified that he'd decided to do a search of Brian's room and noticed some clothing that was stuffed into a hole in the wall behind the dresser. When Kenneth removed the clothes, he found a bloody pillow lying underneath. As Susan explained to Dan, the pillow was later sent to the crime lab run by the Georgia Bureau of Investigations.
1: They sent him to the GBI, asked them to test for, for gunshot residue in blood and they confirm yes there is blood human blood splattered on it
4: but there's no gunshot residue and also there's no bullet holes in it there's no bullet hole in it. no so there there was no gun actually fired through it used as a silencer or anything no there's no gun yeah and that's in the police records yeah so the whole concept of the pillow being used as like a pseudo silencer is just not true it was just like a rumor that was started
1: Four months had passed since Brian's death before investigators sent this pillow to the GBI for testing. The delay was due to the fact that, after getting the pillow from the Bowlings trailer, the police had lost it. It just kind of vanished. Then, one day in February of 1997, Floyd County Police Captain Tommy Shiflet found a bag in the trunk of his car. He opened it up, and there inside was a bloodstained pillow. At trial, Prosecutor Steve Cox asked Captain Shiflet about what he'd found in his trunk answer I was unaware or didn't recall Sergeant Carney placing it in my trunk and then when I found it that day four months later I took it straight to Sergeant Maynard I believe the 17th of February and I told him the pillow that had been talked about was a, was in the trunk of my car and gave it to Perry Maynard to carry to the crime lab so they've been talking about this pillow and they can't find it for, this is why they do nothing for four months because they literally just lose the pillow and cannot locate it until Tommy Shiplett's like oh guess what and then they're like ah shit
0: there's no hole in this pillow we've been wanting this pillow and it does nothing but by now the rumors are all over town that the pillow was used oh
1: they never could they couldn't actually check and confirm so they're told that there's a hole in the pillow and they assume it's like a hole for all the way through yeah but they've actually lost the pillow so they can't they can't
0: tell so they just think it's a pillow with a hole through it from a bullet.
1: That's how they confuse this pillow for a pillow being used as a silencer because they don't actually have a pillow to compare it against.
0: When Captain Shiflet finally did find the pillow in the back of his car, he filled out an evidence inventory form to record that had been taken into evidence. But on the evidence form, he wrote down that he had collected the pillow on October 18th at 6 p.m., three hours before Brian was shot. At trial, defense attorney Rex Abernathy questioned Captain Shiflett about this discrepancy. So between the 18th and the 22nd, the
1: pillow is at Brian Bowling's house. Question, now let me ask you, this date on this pillow that was signed in, 1018, and you picked up on 1022, this sheet, that's your name on there, isn't it? Answer, yes, sir. Question, well, that isn't really the date, is it? Answer, that was the date I thought it may have been gotten when I found it in my car. I just wrote it on there, yes sir. So Abernathy keeps asking about this date thing, and Tommy Shiplett says, you're, you're asking me about a date I wrote on the thing. I made a mistake on that. I wrote the wrong date on that. I did, because when I found the pillow, I didn't really know how it got there or when. This backdated evidence form is the only record of the pillow made by the Floyd County Police. They didn't take any pictures of it or describe its appearance anywhere. So everything we know about it comes from the state lab, who examined it for the presence of gunshot residue and found none. The GBI's notes describe it as a blue pillow with red blood stains. The report says, Pillow found in victim's home where victim was shot. Officers think that the pillow was used to muffle the shot. The report notes, Small hole in pillow, just one side. It's never explained what just one side means in this context. It's not clear if the hole goes only partway through the pillow, as in it starts on one side but doesn't exit through the other, or if it means the hole is on the edge of the pillow, maybe. What we do know is that whatever this hole is, the GBI concluded it was not a bullet hole. To understand more about the GBI's test results, we spoke to ballistics expert Ronald Scott. He's now based out of Arizona, but before that, he spent 25 years as a police officer in Massachusetts.
9: I did uh, homicide investigations for a while, investigated other types of crimes. I eventually ended up in the crime lab. That's where my forensic uh, part of my career started. I spent 13 years uh, in the crime lab.
1: We sent Ronald Scott the thin file of records that we have about the evidence in this case, as well as the testimony about how that evidence had been handled.
9: You lose a pillow, you lose a pillow. You lose a, a cartridge case. Uh, this is, I, I'm, just, I'm kind of shocked, That's why when I was reading this, when Jacinda first sent the email to me, I said, this is just shocking to me.
1: Ronald Scott said it was inexcusable that detectives had not taken even the most basic of investigative steps, like swabbing Brian's hands to test for gunshot residue.
9: The detectives in this case here should have simply told the hospital, we want you to take a sample of the skin. I mean, you got to present this case in court and testify about it. And from what I've read, I mean, if I was on this case, I, I would have made mincemeat out of all the witnesses, at least the transcripts that I've read of everything they did not do right or what they did not collect. That has made this problematic at this point
1: he could have gotten the autopsy he chose not to the lead detective chose to go along with the coroner and not yeah i I
9: would have spoken up and said no we're going to do it this way you you just got to do that as a the investigator
1: he also did no interviews there's no record of any interviews from the night of this happened um
9: that's incredible
1: One of the few things investigators did do was to have the blue pillow tested for gunshot residue. Though the results of that testing aside, Ronald Scott was surprised that the pillow was admitted into evidence at all. He goes to his trunk, opens a bag, sees a bloody pillow, and he's like, Oh, we should probably put some evidence.
9: Right.
1: But so that's the where the pillow then gets sent off to the GBI. And we're pretty sure it's the same pillow, but we don't right. really you know. Right. Yeah.
9: Now, this, this is probably more of a legal issue, but it seems there's a, just a lot going on here, this judge allowed in, that at least where I come from, this testimony would have never, it would have never even reached the courtroom. Uh, the pillow would have never reached the courtroom. I mean, th- there's just a lot that this judge let in. Matter of fact, he almost, he was pretty lenient with the prosecution. He was. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I can, just in what I read.
1: The pillow was allowed into evidence, though, and the GBI analyst who tested it was brought in to testify about the results of her examination.
9: The firearms examiner stated that uh, visual examination of the pillow fails to reveal the presence of gunpowder. That, That would eliminate the pillow. If you've got a pillow and you put this against the pillow... And you fire it you're going to get a tremendous amount of black soot you're not only going to get soot you're going to get gunpowder that'll go into the pillow and when a 38 caliber like this is fired the heat it's about 1500 degrees close to the muzzle no no it spreads out very quickly so there would have been soot burned gunpowder unburned gunpowder, and there would have been thermal damage to the fabric of the pillow, including inside of the pillow. So when I look at this report that says fails to reveal the presence of gunpowder, I mean, to me, that would eliminate the pillow as being even close to this gun.
1: The GPI analyst who testified at and Kane's trial reached the same conclusion that Ronald Scott did that there is no possible way this pillow was used as a silencer. The pillow scenario is kind of off the table. It sounds like It's you're... off the table.
9: I so... mean, I mean from, from my viewpoint, given the scientific data of the GBI report, it's off the table.
1: Scientifically, the pillow is off the table. But what isn't clear to me is why the pillow was ever on the metaphorical table in the first place. Because we still don't know where this pillow even came from. At trial, Kenneth testified that he was the one who found the pillow. Amanda recalls things that way, too. But Brian's mother told investigators that her brother Michael had been involved in finding the pillow. She said that shortly before Brian's funeral, Michael had volunteered to clean the bedroom for her, so she wouldn't have to see the blood there. Deborah Bowling told investigators that while there, he had caught Kane standing on the front porch with a garbage bag, trying to sneak into the trailer. Michael had told her, Deborah, there's something in the trailer that Kane keeps trying to get back into the house to get. That's when they searched Brian's bedroom and found a pillow and a hole in the wall behind a dresser. Deborah Bowling said they'd notified police immediately, but the investigators hadn't come for the pillow right away. Brian's mother said that Captain Tommy Shiflet had not wanted to upset the family any more than necessary. She told investigators that the police, quote, had enough dignity to wait until after my son was buried before they came out and asked us to pull out something that would greatly, greatly upset us.
0: When we spoke to Deborah Bowling's brother, Michael, he did not remember catching Kane trying to sneak back into the trailer with a garbage bag, and he did not remember a pillow being found in Brian's bedroom wall. He did remember the pillow, though. He'd seen it himself, in Brian's bedroom, on the night Brian had been shot. His sister had been using it to prop up Brian's head.
3: To my knowledge, he had his head like laying on that pillow. It was a blue pillow, like a couch pillow, not a bed pillow.
0: Michael told us he hadn't been the one to find the pillow later on, though he had been present when it was collected. It happened a day or two after Brian's death when investigators let Brian's family know that they needed to search his bedroom.
3: I mean, they went through every single thing he had, and every drawer, every clothes. I don't know what they were looking for, but you know, they were kind of cut up because they found like pictures of girls half nude and stuff like that, you know. They did find a pillow up under the bed, which, like I told you, it's the blue pillow that was saturated in blood. And I would assume it's where, when they took him out of the room, that one of the firemen or EMT may have kicked it or whatever and then pushed it up under the bed.
0: The jury, though, never got to hear from Michael. He wasn't called to testify at trial. In fact, the police never even interviewed him. They...
1: so the pillow... But uh,
3: there was no holes through it, like somebody was holding it to muffle. There was nothing like that.
1: Do you remember what the issue with the pillow was, or what?
3: I have no, that's what I said. I don't know what the big deal about the pillow was, ever. That's kind I of Because like to. I said, you know, when I went in there and she was trying to resuscitate him, she had his head on a pillow.
0: Michael does not believe that a pillow was used in connection with Brian's shooting. And he's never understood why people spent so much time
1: talking about it at trial. Also, thank you, Michael Baker, for asking the question I've been asking this whole time, which is, why does the pillow matter?
0: Yeah, he's like, there was no hole in the pillow.
4: Yeah, that was, I forgot about that. He was quite upfront about that, yeah.
0: And he seemed very much like Kenneth didn't find the pillow.
1: To say that the record about the pillow is a mess would be an understatement. You've got Kenneth saying that he found the pillow in the wall on October 22nd and that they called the police to pick it up a few days later. You've got Michael saying the police found the pillow under Brian's bed on October 19th and that they took it with them that day. You've got Brian's mother saying that Michael and Kenneth found the pillow together on October 20th. But the Captain Shifflett hadn't wanted to disturb the family before the funeral, so he'd come by at a later unknown date to get it. And then you've got Captain Shiflet saying that he picked the pillow up on the day of the funeral. Except he didn't know he'd picked it up because someone else stuck it in the trunk of his car and didn't tell him. Then in February, when he happened to find the pillow in his trunk, he recorded finding the pillow on October 18th, before Brian had even been shot because he'd had no idea what else to write on the evidence form, and that had seemed to be as good a date as any. To try and find out how
0: the evidence in this case could have been so badly mishandled, Susan and I went to speak to Captain Tommy Shiflet. Afterwards, we updated Dan about our conversation. He did not want to be recorded. He does not do TV, but he did talk to us for a long time. I mean,
4: he talked to you for a while. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He says he does not remember anything about this case. And he was kind of convincing about it doesn't remember the pillow doesn't know how a pillow would have ended up in his trunk
1: but he had all the same questions that I had about it he's like if there was a bloody pillow in my car for four months how did I not find it yeah he's like I would have opened my trunk on a daily basis or every other day I think he said yeah he's like how how would would I not have seen a bloody pillow who would have put it there he's like was there any paperwork like there should have been paperwork for like
0: he had as many questions about it
1: as we do he had like literally the same questions does that sound
0: right to you how could that be right you know like
1: just seems like there's a problem there doesn't it although he was kind of making fun of us yeah but the the way he reacted did did seem real and that like he was pointing out all the reasons this is absurd that they didn't have that the pillow was found in his trunk four months later which i don't he wasn't trying to cover up the fact that it was absurd excuses he was like that doesn't make any sense like, it shouldn't have been that way. And he thinks it sounds really weird and doesn't understand how it could have happened. But again, he may have been, like,
0: teasing us in his, like, I am a veteran detective and I know what I'm talking about and you guys are just TV yeah. people.
4: Yeah.
0: Like, you know, how do you know that was even the right pillow? How do right. you know it was the pillow related to the case? i like, like, that is my question, like, too.
1: Lost evidence aside... Maybe there's a reasonable explanation here for why none of this adds up. Maybe no one agrees about where the pillow came from because people are talking about two different pillows. As Jacinda and I explained to Dan, this theory was floated, at least indirectly, at trial. And they're able to explain that
0: away by having people like Kenneth say no, there were two pillows. Yeah.
4: That's so insane, though. They're basically trying to argue in court, there's a second pillow that no one knows where it is. And even the first pillow was forgotten in a trunk for four months, but there's a second pillow that no one really knows anything about.
1: It makes sense that there would have been a second blue pillow in the bowling's trailer. It was a couch cushion after all, and presumably there were others like it on the living room couch. But there is no evidence whatsoever that a second pillow was ever taken into evidence. Nor is there any evidence that there was a second pillow that really was used as a silencer, or that investigators somehow sent the wrong pillow to the GBI for testing. Kane's story, for his part, told me that he doesn't recall whether there were any pillows in Brian's bedroom that night.
6: All thing I can figure is they were using this pillow with a lot of blood. I don't know. Because I know, I ran out of the room my God, my God, he shot himself in the head, he shot himself in the head. And me and, and, me and Kenneth Floyd actually met in the door frame. He was coming in, I was going out.
1: Kane says that there wouldn't have been enough time for him to have hidden a pillow in the wall. And there definitely wouldn't have been enough time for Lee to have done so.
6: This whole convoluted theory about Lee being out the window and coming in and doing all this in the blink of an eye. It's like he used to joke with me. He said, yeah, my, name, my last name's Clark, but it ain't Clark Kent. For real, I mean, it's just crazy, because they, they say that he did this and jumped back out the window and put everything back like it was in a matter of three seconds.
1: Even if you believe that it was Kane slash Josh who shot Brian through a pillow, this theory doesn't really get any more plausible. As Amanda and Kenneth confirmed, there was no way that he could have put the pillow there either, because they'd gotten into Brian's bedroom just a few seconds after the shot was fired. It seems like the idea is that Josh put the pillow into the wall.
7: Somebody did. But when
1: would he have time to do that?
7: He wouldn't have done it until later that night. Somebody would have done it later that night.
1: Like thinking someone came back.
7: Yeah, Someone would come back. But I don't know why they wouldn't have just got it.
1: Because y'all got in there so quick, it's not like he could have moved the dress. No, he couldn't. Yeah, no, he didn't didn't have time to do that. No, there's no way he Mm -hmm. had time.
0: So, to recap, we have no idea who found the pillow, where it was found, or when it was found. It is scientifically impossible for the pillow to have been used as a silencer. And there is no way Lee or Kane had time to have hidden the pillow in the wall where Ken says he later found it. These are all pretty big problems for the theory that Lee or Kane used the pillow as a silencer and then hid it in the wall. But they're not the biggest problems. As Susan and I explained to Kevin, there is absolutely, positively no way that Kane or Lee hid the pillow in the wall after shooting Brian. And the crime scene photos prove it.
1: There are crime scene photos that were not initially disclosed to the defense, but later given to the defense that show a pillow that matches the description of the pillow on the floor not far from where Brian fell with um a little bit of blood on it, just laying on the floor in the open.
0: From that night. not from that night. Not hidden in the wall, like out in the open.
1: From an hour yeah, after he was
5: shot. That's what I'm sort of trying to piece together in my head, because I know there's that one pillow in the crime scene
0: yep. photos. In the crime scene photos, there on the floor of Brian's bedroom, not far from where his head would have been after he'd fallen, you can see a blue couch cushion stained with blood. We know this was the same pillow that Kenneth says he found hidden behind the wall in Brian's bedroom. At trial, he's asked to compare the photos with the pillow itself, and he confirms that the bloodstain patterns are the same on both.
7: But in the, I think in one photo I remember seeing, it was at court, I remember seeing the pillow in the picture, it seemed like.
0: The photos were taken that night, shortly after Brian had been shot, by an assistant at the local photo studio that photographed crime scenes in Floyd County. They proved that the pillow had not been hidden in the wall after the shooting. It was just lying there in the open on the bedroom floor. So why did the investigators believe that Kane and Lee had hidden the pillow in the wall when there are crime scene photos that conclusively prove that that didn't happen? Well, maybe the investigators didn't believe that the pillow had been hidden. Maybe they just didn't think Kane or Lee would ever find out about those
1: photos. Several years ago, while working on the Joy Watkins case, I'd had a conversation with his defense attorney, Rex Abernathy. And he told me a story about another case that he tried, involving another teenage boy and a different murder in Floyd County. He told me that in this case, there'd been a pillow that was a crucial piece of evidence and that this pillow had supposedly been hidden after the crime. He'd been given crime scene photos by Clyde Collier, but these photos had not shown the pillow anywhere. It was only on the eve of trial that he'd somehow been tipped off about the existence of more crime scene photos. And when he got these additional photos, they revealed that the pillow had been sitting there in the open all along. It had not been hidden at all. At the time, I hadn't really understood what Rex Abernathy was talking about. But when I met Lee Clark and heard about his case, it began to make sense.
0: For decades, police officers in Floyd County did not photograph their own crime scenes. Instead, a private photographer named Clyde Collier took the photos for them. We talked to Clyde Collier's assistant, Dan Scott. He was the one who had actually taken the photos of Brian's bedroom that night although he said he did not remember photographing this particular crime scene. We explained to Kevin what Dan Scott had been able to tell us.
1: But He did open up about how the crime scene photos worked in Floyd County and it's quite a convenient little racket, I might say. I don't understand it at all. He explained
0: it. So he and this man would take the crime scene photos as a Courtesy
1: for the Floyd yeah. County Police Department. For accidents, murders, suicides, other crimes. As a courtesy. How as a, call be called, as they, a public yeah. service. As a public service.
0: Well, sort of, sort of. They weren't paid by the police
1: department. Yeah, they're for free. So they, they're they called out to all the crime scenes, and they're responsible for taking all the crime scene photos, or for, were. back for, in, for free. For free. And they gave the photos to the police for free. But they charged defense attorneys for them. And prosecutors.
0: But I, what I don't understand is why the, the detectives wouldn't have to turn all of that over as
1: part of discovery. Because they weren't public out. records. Because a the private not. person took them. So do you still have to turn everything over? So
5: this person basically owns the photographs. They
1: they stamp in the back of their photo, the crime scene photos, copyright of Clyde Collier, which is the the main photographer Dan Scott worked for. Wow. And also these guys aren't trained like forensic photographers. Like why the hell are you trusting the random? photographer's office to take your murder scene photos.
5: It's, boy, that's depressing.
1: Although Lee Clark's attorney was not initially given the crime scene photos that show the pillow sitting on Brian's bedroom floor, he did end up getting them before trial. These photos were introduced into evidence. The jury saw them. And the jury heard from the GBI expert, who concluded that this pillow was never used as a silencer. This should have been a big deal for Lee Clark's defense. As we explained to ballistics expert Ronald Scott, this pillow was a cornerstone of the state's case against him.
9: There was two boys charged in this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Was it the one in the room and who else?
1: (laughs) Seven months later, they charge another boy and say that he actually was outside the window and fired the shot that night. Okay. But they didn't actually link him. There was no evidence at the time until seven months later that he was involved. Basically, a witness came forward in May, says um, these boys confessed to a murder. They said they put the pillow over the victim's head and shot him through the pillow. That didn't happen.
9: That didn't happen.
1: The jurors we spoke to reached a different conclusion, though. Well, he believed in the damn pillow, so...
0: saw pictures of the pillow with blood on it.
1: So somehow he took away from that trial that the defendants shot Brian Bowling through a pillow, which is exactly what the prosecutor what was trying didn't... to tell him. I can't explain how the jury reached this conclusion. Maybe, somehow, in closing arguments, the prosecutor was able to convince them that this pillow mattered. Even when it doesn't matter at all, We haven't actually seen the closing arguments yet, but we recently won a court order granting us access to them. So maybe when we get those, there'll be some answers there. But it may be that in the jurors' minds, the pillow seems so important because it was linked to another part of the state's case against Lee and Kane. The evidence that, according to investigators, proved that Brian Bowling could not have shot himself.
0: Yeah, we spoke to juror number 12. Who had some details remembered some details he's had the most so far and it sounded like the pillow the
1: pillow and the rod literally the pillow is the only thing this town remembers of the case but he said
0: something we have not heard from anyone and we have no records of which is there was a picture of a pillow with a rod going through to illustrate the the path the bullet took and that it had to come from that side of the room The, the the window side of the
1: room Next week on Proof.
9: I think the autopsy would have been just of the head. That would have been it. That would have answered the question.
0: There's a photograph of Brian, who's already dead, laying on the table. And there's a rod going through the skull to show how the bullet passed through his brain. And that picture he remembers.
1: Like the only piece of factual evidence in this case that I can't quite reconcile is the statements from the mom and the phone that was apparently like clenched tightly in Brian's right hand.
6: If the phone is clenched in, in his right hand, there's no way he could have shot himself on the right
1: side. If it was soot or charring, how what would that imply about how far the gun was?
3: Well, if it's soot and singeing, it would uh, represent a, being a, a contact wound
0: You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for Episode 7. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.